The best way to establish the truth is often to have witnesses who can corroborate what that person is saying. And of course, in the court of law, this is required. There have been many trials that hung on the testimony of a key witness or witnesses. You see, Jesus in chapter 5 of John has made some staggering claims, not least of which is a claim to be equal with the Father. My Father is working until now, and I am working, he says. And immediately the Jews see that as blasphemy. And it's a capital offense, mind you. To make yourself equal with God is worthy of death. And as his speech to these skeptical opponents continues, Jesus says something rather startling in verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now this this might sound strange for someone who is the Son of God, who is God incarnate in the flesh. God is speaking. He surely needs no other witnesses to corroborate His truth. He speaks true truth. One might expect Him to respond as parents often do when their children ask them, Why? (laughs) Because I said so, and I'm your parent, and I'm bigger than you. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Jesus certainly could have responded that way, Um, but He doesn't. And he does in other chapters. In fact, this same incident comes up again in chapter 8, and he responds that very way. However, to satisfy justice from what we just read in Deuteronomy 19.15, Jesus marshals an array of credible witnesses to testify to his divinity. And this prompts the question, what kind of witnesses are needed to prove divinity? As we walk through this text together, Jesus lays out several credible witnesses that affirm He is equal with the Father. These are the witness of the Father by the Spirit. The witness of the Father by His, that is Jesus' works. The witness of the Father by the Scriptures. Since Jesus marshals a credible array of witnesses, we must believe that He is equal with the Father. As you are able, please stand together with me as we read from the Gospel according to John, chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. We stand out of reverence and awe because these are the very words of God. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you. 
for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. These are the words of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and our Father, we give you thanks for the witness by the Father through the Spirit, through His works, and through Your Word. And we ask that by Your Spirit our hearts may be open to receive the truth of these witnesses. That Jesus is in fact God. That He is co-equal with the Father. And that His glory is evident in the things that He has done and the words that He has spoken. May our hearts be open to receive this Your Word this morning. For we pray it in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus gives defense. He's on trial. Remember, this is a capital offense to make yourself equal with God. And so he brings out his witnesses. Who is going to bear witness to the fact that Jesus is working until now as the Father is? Both are working. And in, this is, of course, in reference to his ability to speak on the Sabbath, to command someone to take up their bed and to walk. You'll notice in verse 32 that Jesus says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Who is this another that Jesus claims bears witness about him? Given, of course, his identification throughout this discourse with the Father, it is right to see him as bearing true witness about Jesus. He is speaking here about the Father, even though the Father is not explicitly named until verse 37. But it's clear that despite his ability to bring forth other witnesses, Jesus needs only one other or two, the Father and the Spirit. They exist, of course, in a perfect unity in diversity. The Trinity, one God in three persons. Here I want to make a case for this another that Jesus speaks of being also a veiled reference to the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus promises in chapter 14, verse 16, to send His disciples another helper, even the Spirit of truth. And after he has gone to the Father, he explains that in John fifteen twenty six. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus is telling them that I'm going to send you another. There is another that bears witness about me, and his witness is true. His testimony is true, because he proceeds from the Father, and what he speaks, he speaks of what he hears and sees just as the Son does. Jesus says that he is not alone, that the Father is with them, and that his testimony is true. However, to receive that testimony about Jesus from the Father you, of course, need the Spirit. 
You need to be able to understand what only someone who has been born again can understand. Someone who has their heart of flesh removed and has been given, or the heart of stone removed and been given a heart of flesh, as we talked about last week. This will be clear to the disciples later on. But what is important now is that Jesus' testimony is not alone. What he is speaking, he speaks as the Trinity. Every person is present with him when he speaks. And he has the credibility of their authority behind him. However, in in an unexpected move, Jesus moves to discuss John the Baptist and the Jews' fascination with his testimony. Although he says they were briefly captivated by his light, that is, the, uh, uh, John the Baptist's uh, work and ministry, Jesus' case, his capital offense trial, does not rest on his witness. Why? Because his witness comes from man, Jesus says. And this does, of course, does not mean that John's testimony was insignificant. Rather, as one commentator said, it means that human witness by itself can never accredit Jesus or prove Him. Only God can prove God. By doing this, Jesus does, of course, does not render John's testimony worthless or irrelevant. He simply does not need it to build His case that He is innocent against the charges of making Himself equal with God. The witness of, a, of men is indeed used by God to bring salvation, such as the preached word. These are not the very words of God, but nevertheless God uses them as means to convict people of sin and to draw them to Christ. And in that way, they function just as he said. Uh, I say these things to you so that you may be saved. The witness and testimony of Jesus did, in fact, draw many to salvation. Draw many to follow, the, the, uh, to follow Jesus in His ministry. And you have to put yourself in, the, in their position. Remember that God was silent to the people of Israel for over 400 years. And then someone bursts on the scene like John the Baptist. He's wild. He looks like Elijah. He's clothed in camel's clothes. And he eats honey. And he's out in the wilderness and he's proclaiming the gospel. He's saying, repent and turn back to God because the Messiah is coming. The Christ is coming. And of course, all of them are going out to see Him. They're reveling in the new light that is coming because God is finally Speaking again to his people. But how did they receive that testimony? Well, some believed and began to follow John. And then when John in John chapter 1 says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Many began to follow Jesus on account of his testimony. But others, others reject him. They liked the novelty of it. But the that the Messiah, that Jesus was the Messiah, they're not so uh, comfortable accepting. And if the testimony of John is not what Jesus is relying on for his case, then who are his star witnesses? And these, of course, are, are two, his works and his word. Jesus continues, notice with me in verse 36, but the testimony 
that I have is greater than that of John. Jesus is not relying upon John because he has something greater. Something that will, without a doubt, shed light on this case against Jesus of blasphemy. And the greater testimony Jesus relies on than John are the works that the Father sent him. He says, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The works, what are these works? And in what way do the works bear witness that Jesus is equal with the Father? First, they are works given to Jesus by the Father to accomplish. Notice that. The Father gives the Son a mission. And He says, I have given you this. You are to accomplish this. They are given by the Father. Jesus is the one who is sent by the Father to accomplish the Father's purposes. And that means that nothing that Jesus has done in His life or continues to do is outside of that scope. His mission. What He came to accomplish. What the Father gave Him that He is doing. Nothing was done that was not in service to that larger purpose. And the work that the Father gave the Son to accomplish was the redemption of the world. The Father sent the Son into the world to save it from sin. We've already seen Him outline over and over again, especially in chapter 3 and then in chapter 4, what this mission entails. It means coming and bringing the good news that in Him, He would reconcile the world back to God. He came. He took on flesh And as the Son of Man, He kept perfectly the terms of the covenant of works that Adam and Israel had failed to keep before Him. And then He, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And then dying a sacrificial death and suffering the full penalty against our sins, He continued in death for three days and then rose again to new life. His resurrection from the dead was the Father's vindication that the Son had finished the work that the Father had given Him to accomplish. Now, even if at this very moment when Jesus is speaking, He has not completed His mission of redeeming the world, yet the works that He has done continue to bear witness to His larger purpose. Even Uh, If the Jews do not see that clearly in changing water into wine, he shows his power over creation. In the healing the sick, in healing the lame man, restoring him so that he walk, he shows his power to reverse the curse of sin. Both signs also illustrate his authority to correct religious abuse that has crept in through traditions. But more importantly, these are works that only God can do. Jesus does God-like things. And these works serve as a witness that corroborate His message. Others, of course, have done marvelous works. You think of Moses and Elijah. But none of these ever claim to be God. In their case, the works God granted them to do testified that God was with them. That God had given them the authority to do those things, but they were always pointing backward to God. 
Whenever something miraculous was taking place, they were saying, glory to God. He is the one who has accomplished this great thing. And they were singing about God's mighty works as they were done in the Exodus. The works testify not just that God is with them, but that He is equal with God. He's not, he's not pointing back at God. He's saying the works that I've done, they point to the fact that I am God. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. John 1.1 1, 1. Jesus' signs were not just impressive displays of power. They were signs that pointed to His true identity as the Son of God. An example would be an artist is known by the style of work that they produce. For instance, a, a Vincent Van Gogh. You see a Van Gogh painting, you know it's done by him. He has a very unique uh, use of very bold colors and thick brush strokes, and he has a very emotional subject matter that's instantly recognizable. You see a Van Gogh, you know you've seen a Van Gogh. The same can be said for many of the master artists, right? They're known by their works, by what they produce. Jesus does things that only God can do. That is, we recognize the style and artistry of God in the work of Jesus. Many people can heal somebody using their natural means. The body has, uh, produces healing, right? Doctors do this. They work with the body and with other remedies to, to bring about healing. But no one speaks and then muscles form. No one speaks and then life fills lungs and they come out of the grave. Jesus does things that only God can do. And those works continue to bear witness that He is not just a prophet, not just a priest, not just king, but He is God Himself in the flesh. His works bear witness. Just as a tree is known by its fruits, Jesus is known to be equal with the Father by His works. Now, there are two ways that we can misconstrue what the works of Jesus are intended to do. First, you could miss the one who the works point to by being so preoccupied with the works themselves, with the benefits of them. And this is what we're going to find when we come to John chapter 6. The people marvel because Jesus feeds them. And they want to follow Him. They try and find Him. They chase Him around the Sea of Galilee. And He, he says, you, you want Me because you want your bellies to be filled again. They're preoccupied with the gifts, with the, the work that Jesus is doing, the healing, the feeding, the spectacle, the power, the manifestation of God's glory. They like that. But they miss the giver. They miss the one doing the works. Secondly, you miss the one the works point to because of hardness of heart. One misses the giver because of the gift, and the other hates the giver and so rejects the gifts, or at least refuses to acknowledge they come from the giver. You see, Jesus did things only God can do. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He fed the hungry, gave sight to the blind. But all of that was a lead up. 
It was just the beginning of something. It was just showing the new creation breaking into this world. It was showing in small, minute ways the power of sin being reversed. The curse that was on all of us of sickness and death being undone. But all of those people died again. It was just a picture, a foretaste of the resurrection when our our bodies would be made new in ways that we cannot even fathom. Jesus in these works was redeeming, was, was showing the real work, was redeeming people from sin. Some, like all the, the temporary blessings, and they missed what those works were pointing to. They liked that they can walk again, but they miss the life that Jesus offered them that would be for all of eternity. They love having their bellies filled but they missed the one who could feed them for all of eternity. But there were others. And that, that kind of following Jesus for what He can give you cannot survive the cross. Those people will flee and abandon a Savior who dies. That's not the kind of leader we want. We want somebody who's going to feed us and make us better, but not die There are others who view Jesus' works as a threat. They see it as a threat to their own religious hegemony. And out of the hardness of their hearts, they want Him dead. Don't pursue Jesus for what He can give you and then fail to follow Him to the cross. Pursue Him for who He is and all these things will be added unto you. Don't empty the cross of its power by pretending you don't need to be saved. When you attempt to make the work Jesus came to accomplish fit into your own idea of redemption, then you empty His work of its true purpose and meaning, which is to redeem you from sin and death and to give you eternal life. Don't fall into either of these two traps. The third credible witness that Jesus marshals to defend the charges of blasphemy by those who said He was making Himself equal with God is the witness of the Father by the Scriptures. Notice with me in verse 37. He says, And the Father who sent Me has Himself borne witness about Me. Notice this is the first time in this section that He is mentioning that the Father is the one who is bearing witness about Him. And he continues, and he says, His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. Don't be surprised if your greatest source of pride becomes a stumbling block that may become your downfall. You see, the Jews prided themselves that they, of all people, had heard the voice of God. Yes, they agree with Jesus. We did not see His form. But they heard God on the mountain, wrapped in fire and smoke as He spoke to them. Or had they? Is it possible to hear and not hear? 
Is it possible to see and not see? Yes, it is. But how? This will be talked about last week. Dead people do not see. Dead people cannot hear. If you remain dead in sin, then the witness of the Scriptures do not make any sense. Jesus Himself says, uh, it is better... uh, You see, that that generation of Jews was, of course, not there on the day when Sinai, when God came down to give them His ten words. But they had the Scriptures. They had the testimony of what Moses wrote down concerning that event. And they revered them. They hallowed them as the very words of God. They prided themselves on searching them for eternal life. But they missed the whole character of the Scriptures. They missed the very intent and purpose for why they were written. And that was to reveal Jesus. The Jews continue to occupy this sad place, searching and never finding. Because they missed that Jesus is the Christ. Paul says, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. 2 Corinthians 3. But this, this is not just a warning for them. This is a warning for us in here. Is it still possible to read the Scriptures, searching them daily for eternal life, and miss that life? Yes, it's possible. It happens every day. It happens in the pulpit, the lectern, and in the pew. There are people who occupy those places who search the Scriptures and yet do not have life. They search And they search, but because they lack the interpretive key, they never find true life. And of course, the key that Jesus is saying is Himself. The key is Christ. He unlocks the Scriptures. The last witness that Jesus brings out to these opponents is something that they have daily attended to. Diligently searching. Yet on nearly every page, It points to Jesus Christ, God made flesh, and there He is. He's standing right in front of them. They see His form, and they hear the very voice of God, and yet they reject Him and pull away. That's not our God. That's not Christ like we want Him to be. You see the irony that John is pointing to. They search the Scriptures and they miss Jesus. They miss Him even when He's standing right in front of them. Because they don't recognize the One who the Scriptures bear witness to. Over and over again, if they would have understood the Old Covenant, then they would have seen Jesus like Zechariah and Elizabeth, like John the Baptist. Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's not reading a different Old Testament than them. He just sees Christ when he reads it. This is another instance of receiving the gift and missing the giver. God revealed Himself and His plan of redemption to His covenant people. And it was inscripturated to be preserved as a witness for all posterity. 
only to be revered at the expense of the God who revealed it. Is it possible to make the Bible an idol? Yes. Any of God's gifts can be abused and used for wrong purposes, including the Bible. But as Paul continued in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. If when you approach the Scriptures, you don't see Christ, then the veil remains. But when you turn to the Lord, the Spirit takes away the veil that keeps you from seeing the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. And if you followed Paul's argument down through the rest of chapter 3 into chapter 4, you would see that God, the God of this world, is responsible for blinding the eyes, for the veil that remains over the people of God, for keeping them from seeing Jesus. And it is God Himself who speaks new creation life into us by His Spirit, enabling light to shine in darkness. And this we call regeneration. This is the new birth. So that what you read one day and is lifeless and an endless search is today life-giving revelation of the glory of God shining in Jesus' face. And that's a miracle that only God the Spirit can do. To behold that is to be changed. So let me ask you, are you changed? If you've been born again, is it possible for you to sink back into reading the Scriptures in this way? Sadly, the answer is yes, it is possible. For at times, the confession says, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season His own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support on Himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for sundry other just and holy ends. Westminster Confession 5, five. Yes, it is possible to have the veil removed by the Spirit and yet return to that blindness and stupor that keeps us from seeing the light of the glory of God shining in Jesus' face. It's possible to go weeks and months and years reading the Word of God and remain lifeless. But it doesn't end there if you have trusted in Christ. God uses those seasons to draw you back to Himself so you discover not only the exceeding sinfulness of your sin, but the glory of His grace and mercy when He welcomes you back. If you draw no life from Scripture and you don't see the glory of God shining through Jesus in the Old Testament and the New Testament, And if what you are reading does not transform you, then it's time for you to do some serious heart searching. Why? 
And thankfully, even the hidden God is only hiding His face for your good. As the psalmist cries in Psalm 13, and this has been my prayer so many times, How long, O Lord, will You forget me forever? How long will You hide Your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, Lord my God. Light up my eyes. Lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I, notice this, notice his turn. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So remember the steadfast love of the Lord. And tole lege, take up and read. And may your heart begin to rejoice in Jesus who is your salvation. As we've moved through this text, we've seen Jesus marshal an impressive array of witnesses to counter His opponent's charges. Will it be enough to convince them? Is it enough to convince you? For some, yes. But for many, they were not convinced. Even at their kangaroo court, they had trouble making their trumped-up charges stick. Poor Pilate struggles to quell the mob and administer justice and ease his troubled conscience. Finding nothing wrong, he appeals yet again to the crowd. In John 19.7, the people respond to Pilate. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die. Why? Because he, may, he has made himself the Son of God. You see, these charges that they bring against him, they level against him when they murder him. And Pilate was even more afraid of that statement, which confirms that the Jews reject the witness of the Father by the Spirit, by his works, by his word. And not many days later, after his death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, when the promised Holy Spirit was poured out on his church, Peter preaches this sermon. He says in Acts chapter 2, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, that's the works. God manifested His Son in and through those works. This man, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now when they, and this is in verse 37, He says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to their heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
These same men who only weeks earlier sent Jesus to the cross for his crime of blasphemy are now cut to the heart, pleading desperately, what shall we do? Only the Holy Spirit can cut someone to the heart who weeks earlier was shouting murderous threats to the same person. It is the Spirit then that continues to marshal these very same witnesses to convict and draw sinners to Him today. We see His work of redemption heard in the Gospels and expounded in the Epistles and blessed are those who hear and believe. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Oh Father, we're humbled as we consider our own rejection of Jesus at times, as we consider the ways that we have looked upon Your works and regarded them and wanted them and sought them for, them, for themselves. And we have missed, the, we've missed who they point to. We have read Your Word. We've been passionate to study it. And yet at times, Father, we've missed the one that it is written about. We have missed Jesus. Oh, open our hearts to receive the testimony of the Spirit bearing witness to us as we continue to behold the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. And may we be transformed to reflect that image more perfectly. Work faith in those who doubt and grant to those who are hardened in their hearts to be cut open by Your Spirit to receive the testimony of Jesus' work and word. For we pray this in His name. And Amen. Just as the Spirit uses the Scriptures to bear witness to